Well, if you turn to James chapter 5, um, we're continuing our series in James. It seems to have been a bit intermittent in some ways, and it's been a little bit interrupted. So our um, schedule hasn't quite gone as according to plan. So um, last week we were supposed to be looking at um, the first part of James chapter 5, but because things had got uh, out of sync, um, Richard actually did the passage before that, and I'm scheduled to be looking uh, uh, look, looking this evening at what, what is the next uh, section, where we're looking at verses 5 to 11. So um, we'll just have to try and fill in the, the blank a little bit, and I, I dare say Chris will intend to go back and do the missing bit at some other point. It's commonly said that patience is a virtue. And I suspect that most of us can be quite impatient at times. Um, you know, what are you like when you're on the phone to a, a company, a bank or something, and you're kept on hold for what seems to be an eternity and you've lost count of how many times that ghastly apology for a piece of music has been played over and over again. Or if you're, you're stuck in traffic and nothing is moving for no apparent reason whatsoever. Or you go to A&E and you're asked the same questions over and over and over again. It, it tests your patience, doesn't it? Or if you're in a restaurant and you've been waiting so long, you begin to think that you've been forgotten <coughs> altogether. I don't know about you, but uh, I'm beginning to feel quite agitated just thinking about those, all those things. Um, hopefully, tonight's sermon won't test your patience too much. Um, but we're going to continue uh, in James by looking at verses 7 to 11. And the, the scene for that section is really set for us uh, by the exhortation that's given at the beginning of verse 7, where Peter, uh, Peter oh, old habits, <laughs> where, where James says, <laughs> where, where James says, be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. He's addressing his brothers um, here in this uh, exhortation. Uh, that preliminary sentence really answers some very obvious uh, and basic questions. So, so by way of introduction, let's consider the questions. Who, what, when and why? Um, who is being exhorted here? Well, James says, be patient therefore, brothers until the coming of the Lord. So he's addressing his brothers, uh, and his brothers are his fellow believers in Christ. So what he's saying here is applicable to believers in Christ. So it's relevant to us. What is James exhorting his brothers in Christ to do? Well, he's exhorting them to be patient. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Um, we'll see that they were facing much more serious issues than the sorts of things I mentioned earlier that might make us uh, 
impatient, the, the Greek word that's been translated as patient here, it doesn't simply mean keeping calm and not getting irritated or uptight about minor inconveniences. It has the idea of steadfastness, of, of perseverance, of, of endurance. And that means sticking at it uh, despite hardships or opposition or whatever. When is James exhorting his brothers in Christ to be patient? Well, he says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. So the text here uses the Greek word uh, parousia, which literally means presence or, or, or coming. And it's the word that's used in the New Testament to refer to the expected return of Jesus. And he's saying to be patient now and to continue to be patient right up until the coming of the Lord. And that immediately tells us, doesn't it, that as believers we are to expect hardships in this world and in this life. We're to expect sufferings. There'll be all sorts of things that we do have to endure. It also tells us, though, that the hardships and the sufferings are not indefinite. It's time-limited. It's specifically until the coming of the Lord. The time for the need for such steadfast endurance will come to an end. Think of that. There's a time to come when we won't have to be patient. There'll be nothing to put up with. Uh, that's coming, but it's not yet. Why is James exhorting his brothers in Christ to be patient? Well, the clue lies in that word, therefore. James says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Now, clearly, that's pointing back to what he'd been saying in the previous verses. Uh, and had our, uh, our preaching schedule gone according to plan, we'd have covered that last week, but for the sake of time now, I'm not going to go over that. I'm not going to go through verses 1 to 6 as such, but if you just take a moment to to look over those uh, th- those verses, you'll see that James had been addressing self-indulgent rich people who were oppressing believers. There in verse 6, he said that the righteous, that, that is, that's believers, were being condemned and murdered even by these rich unbelievers. Now, he hadn't merely highlighted and and catalogued their unjust and selfish behaviour. Notice that in verse 1, he said, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. So he's not just telling them what, what they're doing, what they're doing wrong, He's actually warning them. Uh, he's warning them of, of the condemnation that was in store for them. You know, he asserted that one day they would get their carpents. Judgment and just punishment will come upon them. But although those first five verses were, if you like, they seem to be addressed to uh, unbelieving rich oppressors, James was actually saying that for the benefit of the believers that he was writing to. You see, James is exhorting believers to be patient 
because although they're being mistreated, they know the Lord is coming. Justice will be done, uh, and such oppression will cease. Therefore, he says, be patient until he comes. So that opening sentence establishes the need for believers in Christ to be patient. Now, in what follows, uh, we see that James points out various ways in which we are to be patient. And firstly, he speaks of patience in waiting. Um, continuing in verse 7, we see that James gives an illustration. He says, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. Now, what immediately stands out from that illustration is that the farmer has to wait for the harvest and he needs to be patient in doing so. So James is, is using uh, the, the example of a, a farmer uh, as an example of patience in waiting. But then he goes on in verse 8 to apply that illustration to believers by saying, you also be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And the basic point is that just as a farmer has to be patient in waiting for the harvest to come, so believers in Christ must be patient in waiting for the coming of Christ. That seems to be a, a clear and obvious uh, message but what are we to make of the fact that James mentions the, the early and late rains in connection with the farmer waiting for harvest? Is that significant? Seems unlikely that James would have given that detail for no, for no reason. Well, in, in Palestinian agriculture, the early rains came in autumn. And that was just after the seed had been sown. And those rains were essential for the seed to germinate. If those rains didn't come, the seeds wouldn't germinate. No harvest. No harvest to wait for. Just wouldn't happen. So the early rains were essential. The late rains came in spring and they were essential for the grain to swell uh, in order to give a, a good crop. Without the late rains, oh, there might be a crop, but it wouldn't be abundant. That The grains would be tiny, that they wouldn't be very useful at all. So the early and the late, late, uh, and the late rains were essential for the harvest. And in an agrarian society, these rains were obviously of crucial importance. Now that expression, the early and late rains, it is one that we often find uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, for instance, uh, Deuteronomy 11, 14. Oh, hello, do take a seat. Sorry I'm late. No, that's okay. Better, better late than never. Actually, you've been quite clever because to start with, it was freezing in here. And now you've arrived just as it's starting to warm up quite nicely. So, shrewd move. <laughs> Yes, Deuteronomy 11, <coughs> verse 14. Uh, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain. 
that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. Or or Jeremiah 5.24. They do not say in their hearts, let us fear the Lord our God, who gives the rain in its season, the autumn rain and the spring rain, and keeps for us the weeks appointed for the harvest. Just for one last example, Joel 2.23. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication, he has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the later rain as before. And in, in all of those examples, and invariably elsewhere as well, whenever this expression, the early and late rains, is, is used, it's in the context of affirming the Lord's faithfulness. Um, it, it brings to mind God's covenant with Noah after the flood. Um, Genesis 8, 21-22 he said I will never again curse the ground because of man for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done while the earth remains seed time and harvest cold and heat, summer and winter day and night shall not cease God's given that sure promise and he's faithful to that So the farmer could wait patiently with confident expectation because the Lord is faithful. Uh, And likewise, believers are to be patient in waiting for Christ to return because they're confident in his faithfulness. We know that he'll be true to his promise to come again. Uh, This is what James has in mind when... um, He not only says to be patient, but also to establish your hearts. Well, on what basis do you do that? Well, James goes on to say, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, that could give the impression that that James was saying that the Lord was coming soon. It could give the impression that his return was imminent. But there are good reasons to not take him to be saying that. Not, not least because 2,000 years have now elapsed and we're still waiting. So, you know, that's a fairly good um, empirical observation that makes us think that uh, that wasn't what James uh, was actually saying. Um, you remember that, that Jesus specifically said that no one knows the day or hour of his return. Uh, and James knew full well that Jesus had said that. So it's unlikely that he would have stuck his neck out and asserted the return of Jesus to be imminent. Uh, And besides, if if James really was saying that Jesus' return would be soon, then why was he exhorting patience? Uh, So rather, we need to understand the coming of the Lord is at hand to mean that his coming is certain and that it could be at any time. It's at hand. It, It could be tomorrow. It could be another 2,000 years. We don't know, but it's certain that he will return as he promised. So when James says, establish your hearts, he means be convinced that the Lord will return. He means be confident about it. He means count upon it. Set your heart upon it. Uh, Such conviction supports patience. Yet often impatience arises from uncertainty, doesn't it? You know, we say things like, well, I'll I'll believe it when I see it. Or, don't count your chickens. It's hard to be patient when something's doubtful. You know, will it? Won't it? 
I want to know, I want to find out. James is saying that you can be certain that Jesus will return so you can wait with patience, even if it seems to be a very long time, even if there are all sorts of hardships along the way. can wait with patience because we have a sure hope. Uh, look at Paul's words in Romans 8, 22-25. He says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan eagerly as we wait, sorry, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. You see that? We wait eagerly. We're longing for it. But at the same time, we wait with patience. I tend to think that James's uh, exhortation to wait patiently for the Lord to return is, is something of a backhanded rebuke to us. Um, you know, such a long time has passed now since Jesus went, uh, ascended into heaven I think we've lost that sense of eager expectation. So we're not in danger of being impatient. We don't really expect it to happen any time soon. Oh, we don't doubt that Jesus has promised to return. And we don't doubt that he will. But we've almost become content with the thought that it's, it's not going to come any time soon. Uh, yes, we believe that Jesus will return, but we don't really think that we'll see him return in, in our lifetime. So we don't really have anything to be patient about. But, you know, one of the, the watchwords in the, the early church was, was Maranatha. And that means the Lord comes, that the Lord is coming. There, there was that sense of expectation. Believers reminded one another, encouraged one another with the thought that the Lord is coming. So, so may we recapture that sense of eager expectation. And having done that, let's be patient. We need to, to, to have both, don't we? So moving, moving on, we see that James next draws our attention to what you could describe as patience in relating. Verse 9 um, begins by saying, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so, so James is still addressing his brothers in Christ. And you'll notice this is one of those many one another verses uh, that we find in the New Testament. And at first sight, it might not seem to really be in keeping with the rest of, of the passage. You know, it certainly doesn't mention that word patience or patience. But with a little thought, I think it's apparent that it, it is still to do with patience that the word that's translated here as grumble, it really means to murmur or, or complain. And you notice that um, James isn't saying do not grumble to one another. You know, he's not in, envisioning a, a situation in which you're, you're telling your brother or sister in Christ about things that are bothering you in order to get them off your chest. I mean, having someone to 
to, to listen and lend a sympathetic ear can be a, a good thing. It might well be that they'll, uh, um, they'll see that your concerns are, are, are well-founded and, and they'll give you care, that they'll give you support, that they'll give you helpful advice. Um, or, on the other hand, it might be that they, they see that you're actually imagining things, you're actually exaggerating things, and they'll be able to provide a better sense of perspective. So that can be a, a valuable aspect of, of one another in concept. Um, neither is he envisaging a, a situation in which you're frankly being a bit of an eel. Um, if you're familiar with Winnie the Pooh, you'll know that uh, Eeyore was constantly complaining, always seeing the downside uh, to, to everything, and so being a, a complete discouragement to all who were around him. And I'm, I'm sure you've all come across people who are a bit like that. And if you're honest, perhaps sometimes we can be a bit like it ourselves. But obviously that's not good. But that's not what uh, James is talking about here. What he's saying is to not grumble against one another. He's saying, don't complain about one another. Effectively, then, he is saying, be patient with one another. Be patient in relating to your brothers and sisters in Christ. And we need that exhortation because complaining about others comes so easily, doesn't it? It's so easy to complain uh, about other people. It's something that, that can be a real problem. Sometimes our brothers and sisters in Christ... Um, well, we, we complain about them because we have unrealistic expectations of them. Sometimes our brothers and sisters in Christ really do fall short, that they really do let us down, that they, they really do give us something that we think, well, we're justified in complaining about them. It shouldn't be like that. I, I must complain. Uh, but we're to be patient and refrain from this grumbling. Paul speaks of being patient in relating to one another in Ephesians 4, 1 to 3, uh, where he says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And you see there he's urging, exhorting believers to bear with one another in love. There are times when we have to put up with one another. It's pretty much the same as not grumbling or complaining about one another, isn't it? That the fact is that there will be things about one another that we have to bear with. Uh, and of course, that, that word one another, it's a, a two-way thing, isn't it? It's not just that there'll be things about others that you'll have to bear with, but there'll also be things about you that others have to bear with. And Paul says that such bearing with one another requires humility and gentleness with patience. But what sort of things might we have to bear with uh, in one another? Paul gives some examples. If you turn to 1 Thessalonians 5, Verse 14, uh, he says there, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, 
Help the weak. Be patient with them all. The fact is that we could have brothers and sisters who are idle. We could have brothers and sisters who are faint-hearted. We could have brothers or sisters who are weak. How annoying! How frustrating! Surely we have every reason to complain about them. You, you shouldn't be that weak. You shouldn't be idle. We have every reason to complain about them. And yet, Paul says, we are to be patient with them. In fact, you notice he says, be patient with them all. It's not just be patient with the ones that aren't so bad, or with the ones that that, that we can bear with, the, the ones... The, the, the ones that you can put up with, but be patient with them all, however trying they might be. However, we mustn't think that being patient and not complaining means that we are to stoically put up with them and do nothing. You notice that Paul said, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. So the alternative to complaining is not to be indifferent. It's not to just keep quiet and soldier on, ignore it. No, the alternative is to actively do them good. Paul mentions uh, admonishing, encouraging and helping. And you might think that's... um, Obviously, that's a great ideal, and I can see, uh, I'll see what I can do, but, but realistically, I'm going to struggle. But you see, the fact is that we must take it much more seriously than that. It's not just that it would be nice if we could. It's really important that that, that is that the way we are as a body and in terms of, of one anothering. In the verse, um, verses we read in Ephesians 4, Paul said, that patiently bearing with one another is important to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's important, not only for our own well-being, but for the honour of Christ and for the effectiveness of the life and witness of the Church. James goes on to underline another important aspect of not grumbling against one another. Uh, but rather being patient, by going on to say, so that you may not be judged. That's a a sobering thought, isn't it? Being patient with one another is something that we will be judged on. James has already said that the coming of the Lord is at hand, and you see now he says, behold, the judge is standing at the door. Oh, we thought earlier about eagerly anticipating the return of Jesus... But remember too that when he does come, he also comes as judge. He's going to judge our patience with one another. So that's uh, uh, quite a sobering thought, isn't it? His return is certain and he's coming as judge. That should concentrate our minds. That should cause us to examine our hearts and our behaviour. As well as patiently waiting for him, may we be patient with one another as we wait for him. Next aspect of patience that James draws 
to our attention is patience in suffering. Uh, James previously referred to, to the farmer as an example of patience in waiting. And now in verse 10, he introduces another example where he says, as an example, a clue there, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So now he's using the prophets uh, who spoke in the name of the Lord uh, as an example. According to ESV, he's holding them up as an example of suffering and patience. But the NIV is probably better here in saying patience in the face of suffering. So the sense really is that the prophets are an example of patience in suffering. There's no doubt that the the prophets were characterised by suffering. Um, Stephen said as much in his address before he was executed by being stoned. Uh, Acts 7 verse 52, we see that he said, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Uh, In Jesus' parable of the tenants, that the servants who were sent uh, by the owner represented the prophets. Uh, And in Matthew 21, 35, Jesus said, And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And Jesus didn't only allude to the suffering of the prophets in parables in in Matthew 5, 11 to 12. He spoke quite explicitly when he said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You notice that Jesus mentioned the prophets being persecuted in the context of saying to his followers, blessed are you when others revile and persecute you. Firstly, he's making the point that believers in Christ are likely to have to face suffering. But but secondly, and perhaps contrary to what you might expect, he's saying that in some way there's actually blessing in such suffering. James makes much the same point as he continues in verse 11 by saying, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. James has already said much the same thing back back in chapter 1 and verse 12. There he said, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, we mustn't think that this means that there is blessing in suffering per se. It's not that suffering is automatically a blessed thing. You notice that Jesus is talking about suffering on my accounts. James echoes that because in using the prophets as an example of suffering, he stresses that they were those who spoke in the name of the Lord. Why did the prophets suffer? Well, it's because of what they were saying. And what they were saying was what God said. They were speaking in the name of the Lord. So when they suffered, they suffered for his sake. So the blessing isn't associated with suffering as such, 
but specifically with suffering for the Lord's sake. And even then, the blessing isn't simply in suffering for the Lord's sake. The blessing is in being patient in suffering for the Lord's sake. Jesus said, Behold, we consider those blessed who... Sorry, James said, Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. That is, those who persevered, those who endured in suffering. James's message to his readers, who were suffering oppression at the hands of those rich unbelievers, was to bear it patiently because there is blessing in doing so. And then James continues by saying, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. So so now he's moving on from giving the prophets as an example of suffering, and he's pointing to Job uh, as an example of steadfastness in suffering. Just as uh, we started by talking about patience is a virtue, which has become established in our language. So the patience of Job has become proverbial, hasn't it? Um, Clearly, James assumed that his readers were familiar with the account of Job's life, and I'm sure you are too. Um, There's no doubt that Job was a man who suffered greatly throughout a lot of his life. But James is pointing to Job not just as an example of suffering, but as an example of someone who had steadfastly endured in the way that that James has been talking about. Um, He goes on to say, And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So as well as pointing to Job as an example of steadfastness, he's pointing to Job's experience to encourage such steadfastness and to illustrate the blessedness of such steadfastness. Well, what's the encouragement? Well, it's knowing that the Lord has a purpose in all our suffering. Now, did you notice that? And you have seen the purpose of the Lord. You look at the story of Job, and for Job throughout, it must have been a totally baffling experience, mustn't it? But when you read the whole story, you can see how from the outset the Lord had a purpose, he worked that purpose out, and he brought it to completion. The, the, the life of Job illustrates uh, the purpose of the Lord. So, what's the encouragement? It's seeing that there is purpose in our suffering. That's what's clearly seen in Job's experience. Come what may, the Lord is working that purpose out and he'll complete it. There's blessing in being patient in suffering for the Lord's sake because that purpose that God has is good. So in the case of Job, uh, steadfastness in suffering, well, it resulted in great blessing. And and that was not only in terms of of the Lord restoring and increasing his material blessings. Uh, In Job 42, verse 5, we read that Job said, and this was at the end of it all, he said, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Now, obviously, Job wasn't literally saying that he now sees the Lord, but what, he's, what he was saying 
was that as a result of his suffering and of God's purpose throughout that suffering, he now knew the Lord so much better and so much more fully than he ever had before. What what greater blessing can there be than to know the Lord, who, who as James uh, then goes on to say, is compassionate and merciful. It's a bit like what Chris was saying this morning when he was saying about um, forgiveness not being an end in itself. Forgiveness takes us to fellowship with God. And this is what happened with Job, isn't it? He came so much closer to God. He knew God so much better. The amazing thing about James's, uh, no, not James's, Job's patience in suffering is that he trusted the Lord throughout without knowing what the Lord's purpose was. He simply trusted the Lord. And at times, he was clinging on, wasn't he? I mean, he, he really was put to the test and it, it was so so tough for him and he was really struggling, not not just with the suffering itself, but with, but what is God doing in all this? Um, it, it was a, a real ordeal for him because he didn't know what was going on but you see we know that God has a purpose and we know so much more of God's purpose than Job did we're told in Romans 8 28 and we know that for those who love God all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose So if we're believers in Christ, we've been called, and it's according to his purpose. God's got a purpose in it. And what is that purpose? Well, Paul tells us in verses 29 to 30, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified so you see God's purpose is for his people it's for those he's called it's for those he set his love upon and what is his purpose for them well firstly it's that they be conformed to the image of his son that's that we might be made like Jesus and then we also see that it's um, they will be among many brothers of whom Jesus is the firstborn. So it's that they will be his family, looking up to Jesus and relating to their brothers in one anothering. And then we see that the ultimate purpose is that through justification, they'll be glorified. And that's to be like Jesus and to be with him for eternity. Well, may the the, the sure knowledge uh, of God's purpose for us help us in waiting patiently for the return of Christ. May it encourage us to be patient with one another uh, as we wait for the return of Christ. After all, his ultimate purpose is the same for each of us. We're going to be together in eternity. Um, so, Don't be complaining to one another because God's purpose for each of us is the same. It's this. This is what his purpose for us. Um, 
May it sustain us in patiently enduring suffering as we wait for the return of Christ. Paul, Paul said back in uh, verse 18 of Romans chapter 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. God's purpose for us is so great that we have every reason to wait eagerly, to bear with one another, to endure suffering, and in all of those things, let us be patient. 